I don't know if you guys are familiar with um, this phrase, but anyone, uh, anyone hear of this idea of first world problems before? Has anyone heard that before? Okay, a few of us here. Okay, good number. Um, it's kind of blown up the Twitterverse. It's one of the most popular hashtags on, on Twitter. Basically, first world problems is where people in the first world like us, in the Western world, um, privilege, convenience, luxury, um, where we complain about life and we give complaints that only people in the first world would understand. Okay, these minor inconveniences of life that we have in the first world that people in the majority world would look at and they would scoff at and say, you call that a problem? People in the majority world would die for the problems, quote-unquote problems, that we have. So here are some examples of first world problems. First world problem. Oh, my life is terrible because my cell phone contract ended and the new iPhone hasn't come out yet. Oh, this is so bad. Uh, there are others who say, oh, first world problem, this is terrible. My life is over because my new iPhone 5 won't fit into my skinny jeans. And that's a first world problem. Uh, there are others who, and maybe you've experienced this, or maybe this is your nightly experience. Oh, my gosh, this is terrible. My cell phone charger won't reach my bed. And so it doesn't charge throughout the night, and I can't check it. And first thing when I wake up. These are our first world problems, right? Things that we experience, things that we face um, as a result of living in the first world, things that we consider to be problems that aren't really problems compared to, well, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Oh, my gosh, my, my school won't let me take the helicopter to the prom this year. And we complain and we get upset about that. I don't know if, you, if you've complained about that. But these are minor inconveniences when compared to the real problems of life. Hunger and disease and starvation. Where we complain, oh my gosh, no one filled up the Brita pitcher. I have to wait 30 seconds to get clean water. When there are people throughout the world who are dying because they can't get clean water for the life of them. Right? These seeming inconveniences, these inconveniences that seem like major problems to us aren't really that big a deal when you consider the grand scope of things. But there is a first world problem that I want to talk about this morning. A real problem that comes as a result of us living in this lap of luxury and convenience and comfort, right? First world problem is that a lot of what the Bible talks about seems outdated and irrelevant and foreign to us because we live in a time and a culture that is so different from what the Bible writers and Bible readers first experienced, but is being proven throughout the world in other places where other believers read this and say, this is, this is hope and this is life for me. The message of First Peter, the book of First Peter, the letter of First Peter is one of these first world problems. It's one of these books that we look at and we consider it to be irrelevant so much of the time because as we read it, we say, well, this isn't something that I'm dealing with. This isn't something that, that confronts me on a daily basis. To be persecuted, to have my life in danger, we consider this to be irrelevant, whereas people in the majority world are literally, this is their lifeblood to them, this book of First Peter. They say, if, I, if this book wasn't in the Bible, then I would abandon my faith. Because this speaks so clearly into their situation, speaks so clearly to the things that are going on in their lives that they need this book or else they wouldn't be able to survive all that is confronting them and all the suffering, and all the persecution that they're facing. And as God's word says in Hebrews and in Isaiah and in different places, the word of God is, is eternal. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word stands forever. Even though the birds, uh, even though the flowers fade and the grass withers, the word of God stands forever and it will forever have relevance in our lives. And what I've been trying to show us through the last 13 weeks is the importance and the utter, uh, the utter uh, 
a relevance of first Peter for our lives and for our generation to show us that one not only is the day coming very soon where we will be persecuted for our faith physically, but even now we are being persecuted for our faith in the way of, of, of insults and discrimination and people making fun of us. And if we're not ready for it, if we're not ready for it, then I fear that 30 years later, our churches are going to be like the churches in Europe or like the churches in, in Turkey. Great big, uh, great big buildings, one time filled with people willing to just live their lives for Christ. When hardship and persecution came, they fled the churches, went into the comfort of their own homes, abandoning their faith so that these edifices still remain, but the people have not. So my hope and my prayer is that in going through First Peter, this tiny little book of five chapters through 20 weeks, that we would see the relevance of it and its importance for now, as well as as we move into the future, as well as for parents, that we can teach these things to our children. Because this is the world that we're growing up into, and this is the faith that we're passing on to them. So I'm going to talk today about um, how, we can, how we can find joy in the midst of our persecutions. We're going to read from uh, first chapter, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through the end of it, verse 12 through 19. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. This is God's word. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is God's word. I asked a, a few people this question this week. What word do you think of when you think of persecution? Hey, what do you think of when you think of persecution? Here's what, here's what some of y'all um, gave as your answer. What do you think of when you think of persecution? Uh, the rubber meets the road. Isolation. Friends. Suffering. Inevitable. Um, jury. Help. Jesus. Christian. Hatred stemming from fear. Ignorance. Unfair. Sad, heavy burden, hurt, Middle East, wanted, suffering, oppression, wrongfully accused, voice of the martyrs, injustice, faith, electrocution, torture, death. I want you to, to kind of keep this list in mind as you hear the words that Peter uses when he talks about persecution. He says, um, do not be surprised. Verse 13, rejoice. The end of verse 13, overjoyed. Verse 14, blessed. Verse 16, praise God. 
These are two very different lists, aren't they? And when we think of persecution, we think of it in its objective sense. But when Peter talks about persecution, and we think about torture, electrocution, death, suffering, heavy-hearted, we don't typically associate these things with, you are blessed. Be overjoyed. Rejoice. Praise God. But Peter is saying that there is a way that we can understand that we are blessed beyond measure. There's a way for us to not only rejoice, but verse 13, it says overjoyed. You may be overjoyed. It's saying every day, even in the midst of this, your joy continues to grow and grow and grow. He's saying there's a way that that can happen. And verses 12 through 19 tell us how. So I want to talk about how we can rejoice in the midst of persecution. And I want us to understand that, that persecution, yeah, in, in some places and maybe sometime in our life, it may, it may be a physical kind of persecution, but it, re- it refers to things like being uh, made fun of, being mocked, uh, losing out on opportunities because of your faith in Christ, because of your faith in Christ, not because you're obnoxious, not because you say stupid things, not because you take your Bible and you beat people over the head with it, but simply by, by walking in line with the will of God, we experience suffering, we experience persecution, we experience things because the world is opposed to the Christian life, because the world is opposed to the life of Christ within us. Okay, so how can we endure? How can we not only endure? How can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? Here's the first thing that I want to, to, to pull out from here. The first thing is to understand it is, it is God's pathway to glory. Okay, if we can understand that persecution is God's pathway to glory, it will help us to rejoice. In, in verse 12, dear friends, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. So as they begin to experience persecution, he's saying, don't be surprised. It doesn't surprise God, right? God can't be punked. That's what he's saying. It's not like God's like, oh my gosh, you guys got me this time. I didn't know that that was going to happen to my kids. He doesn't ever say that. He says, God's not surprised. Therefore, do not be surprised when this happens to you. Now, if you read in, in most other translations, when it says the painful trial that you are experiencing, that you're suffering... Even in the modern-day NIV, it will say, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that you're undergoing that is testing you. Why does he say fiery trial? Why does, well, it's easy to see why the 1984 NIV writers translated it painful trial because we don't usually say, oh, that's a fiery trial that you're going through. We don't usually talk like that. But that's what Peter wrote. Why did he write that? Because you all know that in June 19, in the year 64 AD, Rome burned with fire. You've heard, you've heard us talk about this a little bit. Rome burned with fire, and it said, as Rome burned, right, just this beautiful scene of fire from backdraft, or whatever movie, um, the fire started, just, just Rome just burnt to, to pieces. It, it says that the emperor Nero, evil man, he just played his fiddle as he watched Rome burn. In fact, people tried to put out the fire, but he stopped them from doing it. He arrested them. He told them, don't do it. And when they tried to put it out, he would set it on fire again. He liked watching Rome burn for different reasons. He was, he was psycho, first of all. Second of all, he liked fire. He was like Beavis and his friend. They just liked fire, fire. Um, but also because he liked building things. He wanted to destroy it so that he could build it to his own name. Right? That's Nero. So as it's burning, he's playing his fiddle. And for three days in a row, it just burns until everything is decimated. Now, everybody knew that Nero did it. It's, it's not hard to tell when he's telling people, don't put it out. And if they try to put it out, he sets it on fire again. So they knew that Nero did it, but he didn't want to take the blame for it because he wanted to live to see his buildings go up. So he blamed this group of, of people, the outsiders, the Christians. And he said, it's these people who did it. 
And as a result, Christians, you know, when you lose your home, you lose your business, you lose, your, you lose a lot of stuff, you need somebody to blame. You're upset about it. You know, like, oh, okay, that's, that's fine, Christians, that's okay. You need somebody to blame to deal with your anger. And so from there, every historian says that began the first of 200 years of government-sanctioned persecution against the Christians by 10 different emperors, from Trajan to Diocletian to all these people. Ten so for the next 200 years... To even say that you're a Christian carried with it the threat of being thrown into jail or, or, or being killed. Imagine that today. And you're driving from your house to church. And if anybody sees you coming into church, you get thrown in jail. You get killed for your faith. Kind of makes you want to shrink back, right? That's why in those days they didn't have churches like this. They met in homes. They met in people's homes. That's why, again, last week we talked about hospitality. When Christians met in people's homes, it meant that the people opening up their homes were putting their lives in danger. Because this is the meeting place of the Christians who are hated by the world. And so Nero began taking these Christians and covering them in, in tar and lighting them on fire so that he could have streetlights during his extravagant parties that he threw. You hear stories like this. He would dress them up as, as little sheep, uh, Christian babies, and put them out into the wild and let wild beasts uh, devour them. This is what Nero did. And so Peter's writing, and, and different people say different times. Some of them say that he was writing right after this. Some were saying he wrote right before this time of persecution. But when the readers finally begin to understand the fiery trial, they, it's clear in their mind what he's talking about. If they're going to go through suffering and they're going to go through persecution, and this language of fiery trial, trial by fire, something that the Old Testament writers constantly used, and it had a twofold purpose. One, it was to purify the believers. Again, it's that example of, of, of Daniel's three friends in the, in the, uh, in the burning furnace. Okay, it was meant, and, and that's a perfect picture because in two ways. One, it separates the true believers from those who are not. Okay, the genuine believers who would not bow down to the, to the, to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar were thrown into the fire, and the ones, the, the ones who said they were believers who were afraid were separated from that group, and they were, be able to, they were spared their lives. Their lives were spared. And so this fiery trial has a twofold purpose of distinguishing the believers from those who are not believers, the genuine believers from those who are not. And so this is what it's saying in, in verse 15. It says, if you suffer, shouldn't be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Why are you suffering? He's asking, why are you suffering? Is it because you're doing worldly things? sinful things, or are you suffering because of the name of Christ? Saying there's two reasons why you're, why you're suffering, and the fiery trial, the trial by fire, is distinguishing those who are genuine believers from those who are not. I talked about this a couple weeks back, how persecution is the examination of our faith. And in the lives of believers, persecution was to purify and to refine the faith of these brothers and sisters in order to show that they were genuine as followers of Christ. Have you ever prayed, refiner's fire? My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you. I do long for holiness in your heart. This morning as I was, I was praying, and that's what I was praying. I was like, God, I want to be holy. The one thing in my life, I just want, I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be holy so that the generations who come behind me, I, that, that my church and my family members, my children behind me would look at their father as I, I think about Father's Day, that they would see that my dad was a man of honor. He was a man of holiness and, and purity and clung to Christ no matter what the cost. 
Do you long for that holiness in your life? This is what the refiner's fire does within us. It refines us. It, it sets us apart for the purpose of God. Saying, are you suffering because of your sin? Or are you suffering because you're following the will of God? See, again, I've said this before, but our, because we want to be pure and we want to be holy doesn't mean that we go after persecution. Right? We see where, where persecution is happening and that we run into the midst of it in order that we might be persecuted. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying persecution will come to you if you follow the will of God. We don't seek out persecution. We seek the will of God. Right? We say, your will above all else. My purpose remains. The art of losing myself in order to bring you praise. And that's what it is. It's about saying, I want to do the will of God so clearly that even if it means suffering, even if it means being, being persecuted, even if it means being insulted, I, it's about losing myself in order to bring you praise and to bring you glory. That's what I long for. I want, I'm so committed to the will of God that even if that's what it costs, I want to follow you in my school, in my workplace, in my family, on my vacation, in our cafeteria, your will above all else. I just want, I want to follow you, Jesus. That's what it means. Last year, our uh, sixth grade teacher, uh, sixth grade teacher, now seventh grade, uh, Monica, she, she, Monica Lee gave me a, a handout that she gave her students. They were talking about Christ and talking about the call of Christ in, in their lives. And, and this is what, um, this is the worksheet uh, that they gave out. It basically says, following the call. And it says, leaving the comfort zone, it says, would you follow Jesus if he asked you to dot, dot, dot? And there's a bunch of things that it says. Would you follow Jesus if he asked you to attend church regularly, pray each day? And the, and the options are definitely, possibly, and no way. Right? Definitely, possibly, no way. And seven students turned these things in. Would you follow Jesus if he asked you to attend church regularly? Seven, all seven said definitely. To pray each day, all of them said definitely. Would you follow Jesus if he asked you to become part of a Christian singing group? Five said definitely, two said possibly. Maybe because they don't sing well. Would you follow Jesus if he asked you to tell a stranger about Jesus and his love? Three said definitely, four said possibly. Would you follow Jesus if he asked you to tell your best friend about Jesus? Five said definitely, two said possibly. Would you follow if he asked you to abandon your ambitions and become a minister or missionary? Six of them said possibly. One said, no way, maybe later. Would you follow Jesus if it meant taking a Christian stand that might be unpopular with others your age? Two said definitely, five said possibly. Would you follow Jesus if he asked you to die as a martyr? Two said no way, four said possibly. And this one person here said definitely, that I will follow Jesus if it meant dying as a martyr. And I think about that. I'm like, man, what, what does that even mean? At your will above all else. The purpose of a sixth grader remains the art of losing myself to bring praise to your name. Definitely, I would follow Christ if it means dying as a martyr. Karen Job says, if we're willing to endure persecution for Christ in this life, 
This is a sign that the judgment has already come to separate the genuine followers of Christ with those who are not trusting in Jesus. This is what he says in, in, verse six, in, in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's saying, if you're enduring persecution, then the judgment of God has already come. And persecution now is a pop quiz that's preparing you for the final exam of final judgment. And how you do in these earthly persecutions is an indication of how you will do on final, on final exam day. See, in this life, for Christians, persecution is the closest thing that we will get to hell. But in this life, for an unbeliever, this life is the closest thing that they will have to heaven. But neither of these things, all of these things, both of these things pale in comparison to eternity. And Peter's saying, nah, don't, don't do it for a, moment of, for a moment of comfort, for a moment of security. Don't deny the name of Jesus. And Peter's saying this as one who a thousand times he failed. He knew that his mercy remains. And if I stumble again, I'll be caught in your grace. But he's saying, don't do it. I've been in that place and I've understood what it is to deny the name of Jesus. And I don't want to go back to that place. And he's warned, he's telling, don't do it. It's worth it to follow Jesus. It's worth it when you meet the eyes of the Savior. Though, he says in chapter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Think, I've seen him and, and I, I still denied him and yet I love him. I've seen him and I'm telling you, I've seen him with my eyes and I testify to who he is. Say, don't deny the name of Jesus. Don't deny the name of Jesus. No matter what may fall, follow him. And Peter's saying, don't deny the name of, of Jesus. It's, he talks about how in this, um, as you follow the path of Jesus, okay, being overjoyed when the glory of God is revealed in verse 13. He's saying, we follow, we can rejoice because this is the pathway to glory. And the Bible constantly talks about your level of glory in heaven is commensurate with the level of persecution that you endure on earth. Saying, as you are persecuted and on earth, right, that's a pathway to the glory of God. I rejoice that you follow in the same path that Jesus, your Savior, went before you. Because just as surely as Jesus who suffered is now glorified, will be glorified forever in his exaltation, so too you and I who suffer for the name of Christ will receive glory and receive reward for the name of Christ, right? Those of us who find ourselves being closet Christians and, and Christians only at church, but when in the world we hide our faith, right? there's not much glory remaining. But those who boldly live for the will of God above all else, losing ourselves, even if it means shame to our own name, even if it means that, that, that Jesus increasing means I decrease in my popularity, in my status, in my climbing up the corporate ladder, even if it means that I follow the will of God and I get mocked and I get ridiculed and my boss makes fun of me and they deny me the pr promotion. People are being passed over me even though they, you do a far better job, even if it means us being passed over for these things. Though you may not see it on earth, 
says your glory in heaven is going to be far greater because you are storing up for yourself an eternal reward. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for your reward in heaven is great. You read this in the Beatitudes, you read this in Romans, you read it in Hebrews, you see it here. We can rejoice in our persecution because of the fact that we know that we're on the pathway to glory. This is the first motivation and that would be reason enough. But the second thing that we see here, second thing that we see here is that when we are persecuted, the spirit of God rests on us. Verse 13, verse 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What does that mean? I've had uh, (laughs) several conversations and I know that house churches are talking about this as we've talked about persecution. And a handful of people have said, I don't think that I could die for Christ. I don't think that I could do what what Elliot Goulter did. I don't think I could see my wife being tortured in front of me. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could give my life and and be tortured uh, for the sake of Christ. I don't see how people can do it. Isn't it better if in that moment of testing when our our family, our church is going to be killed, isn't it better if we say, you know what, Um, I'm not really a Christian so that these lives could be spared? I don't see how it's possible to give my life Christ. Now, I, I read stories of martyrs and DC Talks Jesus Freaks and Fox's Book of the Martyrs and persecution.org, reading stories like this. And, and for a long time, I, I, when I was younger, I used to tell stories of, of martyrs a lot because my life was, I was all just, just passion. Let's go, let's go, let's do all these, give our lives to the flames. And, and I realize that even in the midst of that, sometimes hearing the stories of, of martyrs doesn't inspire us because I feel like, yeah, that, that's cool and all, but I need something that's going to help me to live today, right? So what, is it, what does that mean today? But with this series, I, I, I can't help but, but talk about it because I know that this is, this is the context in which it's being spoken. Hey, this is First Peter. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about the martyrs. He's talking about the people suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's talking about uh, the majority of believers throughout the world who are experiencing this rather than experiencing this. Persecution instead of these first world problems. And this is our future as followers of Christ. And that's why we can say as we give our lives, people's lives are transformed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That every time the gospel has exploded in revival and awakening, it's been because people have been willing to lay down their lives. And a witness that doesn't cost anything will accomplish nothing either. And so I think about these stories, and I think about this. There's one in, in uh, the 1960s during the time, in Romania during the time of communist rule. There's a, a pastor named Florescu, and he was arrested, and he was beaten and, and, and tortured, and hot irons branding him, and, and beaten with poles, and and basically all they wanted was for him to either deny his faith or tell them where the other, who the names of other believers were so that they could be tortured as well, so they could stamp out Christianity from Romania and allow the communist rule and regime to reign over that land. And he said, I, I, I won't do it. And so they were, were torturing him. They um, beat him and they put him in solitary confinement and they released, they starved rats. Okay, they starved rats and then they used poles and they pushed them into his cell and they just ate at his flesh and he couldn't sleep 
or else he'd be devoured by them. So he would, for two weeks in a row, day and night, he had to stand up fighting, fending off these hungry rats. He wouldn't, he wouldn't budge. And so they brought in his 14-year-old son, Alexander. And they said, you know what? Um, we're going to torture your son until you tell us what we want to know. And he, he just began to go crazy. And after seeing his son, he said, you know what? Uh, Alexander, he said, I need to tell them what they want me to say. Because I can't bear to see you tortured like this. And this 14-year-old son said, he said, Dad, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor for a father. Just be a man and stand firm. If I die, I will die with the name of Jesus and the word of heaven on my lips. And with its eyes set above, he was beaten, blood splattering the prison cells, and both he and his father stood firm for their faith. And as I think about stories like that, what is it about the name of Jesus and about the hope of glory? It says, when you suffer, when you're persecuted, if you're insulted, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Every, every person who, who interprets this passage says that when you're suffering for the gospel, can we have no idea? You know, all of us, and I, I don't think I could suffer for the gospel in the way that these people are. But what every, my missions professor was the first one to say this, and every person afterwards, as I read commentaries and I read other people's, other scholars, they said that in that moment of persecution, this is not only their interpretation of this and other verses, but the eyewitness accounts of many people who have witnessed the martyrdom of people who gave their lives for Christ. The testimony, the written and verbal testimony is that there's never been, as they die for Christ, they don't kick, they don't scream, they don't curse, but so many of these stories, right, with joy, with peace, with forgiveness, with love for their enemies, they gladly entered into glory. In Acts chapter 7, when it says Stephen was stoned, and it says he looked up and he saw heaven opened up, most scholars say that the Spirit, it says the Spirit of God rested on him. Most scholars say that the, the physical things that were going around, he was oblivious to the physical pain around him. Why? Because in that moment of suffering, the Holy Spirit rested upon them in such power that there was a protection from that so that they could, they don't die saying, you son of a biscuit-eating bulldog, you're terrible. They die with joy and gladness, testifying to the beauty of the Savior for whom they gave their lives. What does that mean? that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I don't think we'll know it until we're in that moment. We're in that moment of testing and persecution. That's why he says, don't be surprised when this happens so that you can be ready for it because the spirit of God will come on you when you need it the most. The moment of greatest persecution is a moment of greatest power the moment of greatest suffering is a moment of greatest anointing of the Holy Spirit upon your life. Piper, John Piper tells the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was a, a, a Dutch, a beautiful story. If you can read her story in The Hiding Place, the book is called The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom. A Dutch Christian, her and her family hid Jews during the World War II Holocaust and protected them from the Germans. She was later caught and she was just imprisoned and beaten and all kinds of horrible things happened to her. But she stood for her, for her faith. It's a short little book, Hiding Place. Read it. But in that, 
in her story, she talks about how uh, when she was a, a child, and she said to her dad, I don't think I could, I don't think I could suffer for Christ if the Germans captured me. I don't think I could do this. And he told this story to her, and he said, you know, uh, Corey, when you go on a train ride, when we go on a train ride together, do I give you the ticket three weeks before you go, or do, do I give it to you right before you get on? He says, you give it to me right before I get on. He says, in the same way, God will give you the strength that you need right when you need it in order to faithfully stand up under the persecution that you will face. And she said that that story from her father empowered her and encouraged her to go through all that she went through for the sake of the gospel. Your will above all else. My purpose remains. The art of losing myself to bring you praise. That's the second thing. Then lastly, the last reason to rejoice is that our God can be trusted in every season. Our God can be trusted in every season. Verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Okay, this word here, when it says those who suffer um, should commit themselves, the word here is to make a deposit. Saying, as you suffer according to the will of God, because you put the will of God above your own comfort, above your own convenience, above everything that your own pleasures, because you put the will of God above all things, as you suffer for the will of God, it says commit, deposit, entrust your life and your soul to God. Uh, this word is huge because in those days, they didn't have modern banking like we do. They didn't have Bank of America, Mercantile Bank, whatever it is. You can put your money, it'll be safe, FDIC insured, none of that stuff. So if you were to go on a vacation, if you go on a trip for work or wherever it is, you're going to visit family, I don't know. All, all of your belongings are just there. If you carry it with you, you could get jumped, you can get mugged, and so you'd have to leave it on deposit with a neighbor. But you have no idea how unsavory these neighbors could, could be, how, how untrustworthy these people could be. And so when you're depositing your stuff with your neighbor, you're taking a massive chance and you're risking yourself that I don't know if I can make, I don't know if they're going to give it back to me when I come back. And so this word to commit, to deposit, has a sense in which I don't know if it's trustworthy. But when it says in verse 19, if you suffer for doing God's will, commit yourself, deposit your soul to your faithful creator. Say, God is not like your neighbor. He's not like the dude at Barnes when you're studying. You got your computer. You got to go to the bathroom. Hey, can you watch this? And you don't know if you could trust him. And that's not who God is. Say, God is your faithful creator. And you can entrust your soul. To, you can entrust your life to him because he will be faithful forever and ever and ever. You can believe in him. You can trust in him. And in that moment of suffering, the moment of persecution, he can be trusted in every season in the in the good times as well as in the hard times. So that because of the Spirit living in you, because of the Spirit of glory and of God that rests on you, because of God's faithfulness, on that day when your strength is failing, the end draws near and your time has come, still your soul will sing His praise unending. 10,000 years and then forevermore. 
It is not about this momentary pain in this life, momentary persecution, momentary being made fun of, but forever and ever and ever to the one whose glory knows no bounds and for thousands and thousands of years unending we will sing his praises as we can entrust our life to him. This is the same word that Jesus used in the moment of greatest persecution in his life at the cross. He says, Father, into your hands I commit, I deposit, I give my spirit because you are trustworthy. Saying the same God who is faithful to you all of these years will continue to be faithful 10,000 years and then forevermore. And in that moment of testing, in that moment of persecution, he's not going to abandon you. The promise is true because at the cross, Jesus Christ was abandoned by the Father. The only sure sign that he will never abandon any of us because he took the punishment for our sins. He took the abandonment that you and I deserved in order that we might have the forever embrace of God that only Christ deserved. And he who was faithful, he who has been faithful to us up until this point will continue to be faithful until we see him face to face. It's the promise of God. This letter of 1 Peter was circulated amongst the churches in Asia Minor, and one of the places that eventually got was a place called Smyrna, where there was a church. It's written of in Revelation. The church of Smyrna, there was a man named Polycarp who was the bishop. He was kind of the elder, the pastor, the overseer of that church. And at some point, he read the letter. He became a Christian at the age of 20-some. And for 60 years, he served as the overseer of that church. I think it was 60 years or so. And he was later captured for his faith. And one of his church members uh, began to write, from the moment he was captured, began to write the story of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. That when he was captured, he was taken into the Colosseum where crowds were chanting for him to be killed. Chanting and screaming because it was either Caesar or Christ. Right? Either Caesar is Lord or Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And he chose Jesus. And as he was arrested, crowds were cheering and they were screaming and calling for his death. This is what eyewitness accounts say. They said that they heard a voice from heaven saying, Polycarp, play the man and be strong. And as he heard, I mean, this is, this is, but eyewitness accounts say that even in the midst of the crowds going crazy, other people around Polycarp heard that voice from heaven also. And strengthened by that voice, they threatened him and they said, fire, lions, beasts, wild beasts be thrown to you. And he said, bring them on. I'm not going to deny my Savior. So they said, gave him a chance. They brought them out. And he said, deny. And, and this is what he said, this famous quote. He said, for 86 years, my Savior has never wronged me. Why would I deny him now? my king who saved me. He said, for 86 years, he has not done me any wrong. I know that he will continue to be faithful through my dying breath. Why would I deny him? And so they released the executioners and said, let's uh, tie him up and we'll burn him at the stake. And they were going to nail him. But he said, you don't have to nail me. The same Jesus who allows me to stand will keep me from running away from this fire. And he said, okay, they just tied his hands behind his back to a pole. And they lit the fire. And 
countless eyewitness accounts, countless historians say the fire reached way over his head, consumed him completely, but he was not burned. And so frustrated and angered, they ordered them to take a spear and to spear him through his side. And as they did, he died. They said so much blood and water came out that the entire fire was put out. And all around, people began to put their faith in Christ because the blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church. When the world sees people standing faithful to the one who is forever faithful, it shows the watching world a picture of God, gives them an illustration of the Savior unlike anything that they've ever seen. We can stand firm in the midst of whatever we go through. We can even rejoice when people make fun of us at school for following Jesus Christ. We can rejoice when we close our eyes to pray in our lunchroom at, at work and, and people start murmuring and, and they start mocking you and they start closing their eyes and praying and speaking gibberish and laughing at you. We can rejoice when we suffer for the sake of Christ because it's the pathway to glory. Because in that moment, his spirit will rest on us because we know that he will be forever faithful to us. May we then, my friends, stand firm, seeking the will of God above all things, no matter what price we pay. Let's pray together. Let's pray to the Lord. Maybe some of us know what persecution we may endure for Christ. Maybe God is challenging us this summer. Hey, pray, really pray for your school. Pray for your school so that when you get there, when you face persecution, that you'll be strong. And if you stand firm, then I guarantee that the kingdom of God is going to come at your school. Maybe that's what God's saying to you. Maybe God's saying to you, hey, I know you want to, I know you want to bend corners. I know you want to twist things around and you want to kind of slack off and compromise a little bit in order that the name of Christ wouldn't be as vocally made known, but you just want to do it quietly. Maybe God's saying, hey, let's take a step. Let's take a step. Pray for your coworker. Yeah, just next time they tell you a problem. Maybe they're, they're telling it to you because they need not your help, but they need God's help. God say, just pray for them. Maybe others of us, it's, there's someone in your life. They just really need the gospel. And every time you invite them to church, they've been so antagonistic. They've hated on you. They said, no way. I do a million things before I go to church. Maybe God's nudging you and saying, just take another step. Take another step. Maybe not. If they say no, move on to the next one. Move on to the next person. Maybe others, as you're inspired by our brothers and sisters who suffer around the world, you want to do something about it. You want to get involved in the cause of the persecuted church around the world. Maybe that's your commitment to say, God, I want to remember my brothers in chains. I want to remember my sisters in, in chains pray for them that I might share in their burden that I might be their strength encourage them let's take a couple moments right now just to pray to the Lord as we commit 
this teaching to God. Pray, Lord, may the word become flesh in me. Arm me, equip me, ready me. Just as Christ suffered on his way to glory, so too will I. But help me to stand firm for the joy of Christ in me. Let's pray for a minute, for two minutes, just committing our hearts to the Lord. Let's do that for a couple of minutes and then I'll pray and we'll continue in our worship. Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're not just telling us to suffer. You're not just telling us to be insulted. You're not just telling us to withstand hardship. You're telling us that that's going to come because we love you because we know you, because our lives have been changed, because our souls have been saved, because our past has been forgiven, because our hope has been secured, because our future is bright with you. God, you don't ask us to suffer just because. You ask us to do so as part of the course of loving you, of knowing you, of following you, of obeying the will of God. And so, Jesus, when we go through hardship, lift our eyes above our persecutors, above ourselves, above our flesh. Lift our eyes to see the beauty of our Savior, the wonder and the worth of our King. May we gladly bear up under the persecution, knowing that you're worth it. Jesus the Christ, the only one worth living for, the only one who died for us. We thank you that you loved us first. That's the only way that we can love you in return. Thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name.